The other factor that really, I think, set Melbourne apart was the end of fine dining. There was a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurants that all just really just fizzed out. So there were a lot of chefs around Melbourne that then got day jobs in cafes. Melbourne's got an incredible cafe scene. Like if you say, oh, what's the 10 best cafes in London? Yeah, you said that to me. I, was, I, I couldn't do it in Melbourne. I, I could tell you the top 100. There's so many great concepts. I think a lot of cafes aren't making that much money just in regards to rising costs of you know, food, rent, all those sort of things, as well as you know, staff costs. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Next week is a big occasion for the Melbourne coffee community. Barista champions from all over the world and leading suppliers will be arriving there to attend the World Barista Championships at MICE, the Melbourne International Coffee Exhibition. Melbourne is considered one of the world's most influential coffee cities. Some even suggest it is the epicenter of specialty coffee. But what is it about this city and its cafes and roasteries that have inspired so many people across the coffee world? So today we'll explore the past, present and future of the Melbourne coffee scene by speaking with Mark Dundon, Sean Edwards, and we begin by inviting back to the podcast Ross Quayle, Sales Director for Asia Pacific at Hemro International, and someone who has seen Melbourne's coffee landscape flourish over the past 20 years. Ross, welcome back to Fifth Wave. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's an absolute pleasure. Right, well, um, maybe give us the one-minute version of your career in coffee so it'll set the scene. I made a horrible choice to join the military when I finished school, and uh, I decided to leave that behind after probably less than six months. Went back to uni and did applied science and hospitality management. I got into the coffee scene first in Balaclava in the main Jewish area of Melbourne in, in a great little European coffee shop, roasting coffee and, and doing everything probably for more of an Eastern European side. I gradually then moved into um, a few other coffee roasting businesses and then volunteered in the Specialty Coffee Association for Australia. That led me to some new jobs and that takes you into sort of like a St. Ali sort of era. I then grew up a little bit, had a family, and uh, now I'm currently in my mid-40s, and uh, I've had a few more senior uh, commercial roles with Slayer or Espresso, and now more recently with Hemro International. How did I go? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. So, the Melbourne coffee scene, that's a career of over 20 years in the coffee industry. How's it changed? Well, it's changed enormously. In the beginning, we obviously had the very strong migrant influence. In the particular area that I landed in, in Balaclava, which is just on the fringe of St Kilda, that was much more, as I said before, the Eastern Europeans. So you had Czechs, Poles, Russians, Hungarians, Serbians, Croatians. And back then, Turkish coffee was as popular as any specialty coffee that was out there. People drank as much plunger as they did any other type of coffee. So when I started there, it was a real eye-opener because we were having all of the European chocolates, the wafers. So for me, it was, you know, I was a kid from Anglesey, not a very culturally diverse seaside country town. And then going up to Melbourne, it was like, it was another world. So for me, the beginning 
was something that was probably maybe a bit different to some people having that quintessential, maybe the Ligon Street Italian experience. And I, I did have that a little bit. But what I got stuck into was this European side of things. I was just so immersed in it all. It was wonderful. So, I mean, Melbourne is known as potentially the epicentre of specialty coffee culture. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, many people over the world will say otherwise, but there's a lot of people as well that believe that Melbourne is really where it's at as far as the coffee scene. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I really do. For me, the changes were spurred by coffee competitions, most definitely. I think they had a huge part to play in the evolution of Melbourne coffee. Add into that a few other factors. You had 9-11 that actually, I don't know if you, everybody remembers what happened surrounding that, but, you know, stock market crashes, US parity with the Australian dollar, and the cost of green coffee actually became much more affordable. And then we had coffee competition starting. That was also the start of ACE and the Cup of Excellence back then. And I guess I'll probably add the other factor that really, I think, set Melbourne apart was the end of fine dining. There was a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurants that all just really just fizzed out. So there were a lot of chefs around Melbourne that then got day jobs in cafes and it was a much better environment. And we saw this evolution of food at the same time. We had accessibility to the product. We had an engaged audience. And then I think maybe culminating a little bit with, you know, give some credit to Paul Bassett back then, flying the flag, winning our world title, that again, these Aussies on the other side of the world with not much culture of their own, all of a sudden said, hey, we can do this. And I think there's a lot to say for that. And it's really just evolved from there. So how is the scene now currently? We're through COVID. I mean, Melbourne was a city that was locked down more than most other cities in the world. Has it recovered its mojo in terms of the trading performance of cafes? Look, it's not the same. I'd almost describe the CBD as Melbourne's newest suburb because it's not a CBD anymore. There are people that live there, but there are definitely not the people working there. The work from home movement has changed all of that. But I guess the coffee scene, yes, of course, it's coming back. We saw a lot of people work from home. So the cafes in the regional areas, I think, were incredibly busy. Initially, that consumption shifted to home. I think everywhere in the world would have seen that. But we saw a a really quick pivot into more higher quality coffees available in supermarkets. And there were some Australian brands, some local Melbourne brands that just moved into supermarkets. And really, it was a magical time for them. Um, I think, as we all know, the e-commerce side of things, Australia Post couldn't keep up. So it was either your local cafe that was still open that you could get takeaway or it was the supermarket. So that really changed a lot of things for people. And then now I think we're starting to open up again and get back to cafes. So I think now the city is starting to come back, but it's still got an awfully long way to go. Finally, how do you think the Melbourne scene is going to evolve over the next couple of years? There'll be a lot of people that, I guess, tighten their belts financially, and they'll run much tighter ships because I guess that what COVID has taught all of us is that you need to be not only recession proof, but you've got to be a pandemic proof with your business. So I think a lot of people will really invest in technology that'll allow them to maybe free themselves of sometimes higher labor costs, which are for businesses traditionally pre-COVID may have been anywhere between 30 to 40% on average, which is quite high. 
So I think the evolution will still be people searching for better coffee. There'll still be people looking to roast coffee and make coffee in different ways. But I think at the heart of it all will be technology will take its place as one of the new driving factors in what innovates in addition to what the barista can bring about standing in front of the coffee machine. Technology will really define so much more of the future. Just as an aside here, Australia has always been known for very high labour costs in hospitality. What would an average barista be earning? Look, if you're talking about full-time wages, I've seen jobs advertised during the pandemic and since then $70,000, $80,000 for head barista positions or head of coffee positions within businesses. And um, when I think about it in my earlier years, that's double my salary less than 10 years ago. But from that sort of point of view, salaries are higher, award wages have grown considerably. I think probably award wages are probably sitting around $23 an hour at this point in time. And then you add your penalty rates. So look, whilst it is high, the cost of living is also still quite high. So it's still relative to, you know, being able to feed yourself. And I I wouldn't necessarily say or rush to people say, you know, baristas are overpaid because rent, Jeff, we've got sub- 1% rental availability. So it is a landlord's market at the moment. So those types of financial household pressures still make it very important for the baristas to be able to earn enough money and to stay in our industry because COVID has caused a huge brain drain on our industry. Thanks, Ross, for joining us on Fifth Wave. It's an absolute pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Ross explains the rise of Melbourne's coffee scene is due to the simultaneous arrival of new curious coffeepreneurs riding the wave of a strong Australian dollar in the early 2000s. This, coupled with Melbourne's renowned culinary scene taking a greater interest in coffee, provided fertile ground for Melbourne to become one of the most influential cities for specialty coffee globally. And growth continued unfettered until COVID caused the closure of many cafes in Melbourne, especially in the central business district. Today, operators also grapple with the hospitality-wide staffing crisis. And to add to Ross's insights, we now speak with Sean Edwards, founder of Cafe Culture Magazine, the Golden Bean Awards, and coffee operator. Sean also runs Cafe Pulse, a two-yearly major survey of Australian cafe owners. So who better to get another insight into Melbourne's coffee scene and its global impact? Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Jeff. Let's get started by just asking, how did you get into coffee? Actually, it was an Englishman that introduced me to espresso. We, um, my wife and myself were going to start a cafe and we didn't know much, a lot about espresso coffee and we bumped into a, a guy who's out from England named John Story. We started a cafe in the, up in the mountains, actually, is a long way from anywhere, and we were very successful. And like most people do, they, they try and get bigger and better, and we started another couple of cafes, and that's the little empire grew until coffee became a bit of a monster to us, and uh, the cafes were fairly hard, hard to you know, run lots of people. So we, we dived out, and I went and worked for an events company in Sydney. But the whole time I was at the events company doing you know, IT projects, um, they weren't doing anything around coffee. And was, uh, so that sort of led, I suppose, to us starting our first trade event, which was called Cafe Biz. And that was all about getting cafes to think smarter and start looking at their business. A lot of cafes were failing you know, in Australia at the time, and it was probably more due to the fact that people just 
weren't taught properly, they just didn't have the skill or the knowledge to actually run a successful cafe business. So that became our business for a lot of years. So let's get stuck into the whole Melbourne scene. Where is it at now and, and how has it changed over the last decade or two? Melbourne's got an incredible cafe scene. Like if you say, oh, what's the 10 best cafes in London? Yeah, you said that to me. I, was, I, I couldn't do it in Melbourne. I, I could tell you the top 100. There's so many great concepts and cafe businesses that are, that are really doing well, not just with coffee and beverage. They're doing amazing food. I always like to describe the Melbourne cafes like going to a fine dining restaurant at breakfast. You know, you've got this amazing choice, world-class chefs presenting you know, amazing food on the plate for less than $20. It's definitely a, an exciting place to, to have a bit of a cafe crawl. Your data, does it give any sort of a comparison between Sydney and Melbourne? Is there a difference between those two cities? Melbourne's very European. It's got the Greek, the Italian culture that is strong and that really become prevalent after the probably the Second World War when a lot of a lot of migrants actually moved into Melbourne. Um, but Sydney's got more of an Asian influence, so it feels like you're in Southeast Asia. So you've got that Asian influence in the food and, and also some of the beverage styles. What impact did COVID have on the Melbourne coffee scene? We know that it was heavily locked down. Yeah, well, it pushed takeaway. So the suburbs did really well. Mel- Melbourne's made up, once you get out of the city, it's made up a lot of a really cool suburbs. So the local cafes did very well converting over to takeaway coffees and takeaway food. So you know, the bacon and egg roll was a, was a superstar and probably the, the sad to say, but the 16-ounce coffee become a bit of a, a hero during COVID where people would, would drive off and get a, a bigger cup of coffee and, and their bacon and egg roll and, and go home and get on their Zoom calls. You know, it has bounced back. A lot of the inner city cafes are still struggling because a lot of them were we're under office blocks in high street shopping areas, you know, but they're still bouncing back slowly. But they did weed out a lot of cafes that probably shouldn't have been there. Australia, like everywhere else in the world, pre-COVID, a lot of developers who are building buildings thought it was great just to throw a cafe into their space, probably to sell the rental space for offices, you know, entice big office companies to move in. So a lot of those, those sort of places did shut down. But they'll, they'll emerge back, you know, as people start to come back to the, the norms of working in office again. Fantastic. You also spent time in the States, uh, specifically Portland with your golden bean. I mean, I mean, any observations on the difference between the Melbourne coffee scene in, in other cities around the world, especially the Northwest Pacific? In, in the Pacific Northwest, there's some really good businesses, the stump towns and the covers that everyone talks about. But you know, if you probably put them side by side, say a Grounds of Alexandria in Sydney compared to, say, one of those businesses, they're micro compared to what, you know, is happening in this, in Australia. The food scene's really still very poor in the US. Really, they don't have much of a food offering. You'll get a bagel or a club sandwich or a, a breakfast roll, but you won't get a that, that amazing meal and dish. Yeah, so Melbourne's seen having its influence in other parts of the world. Definitely, um, yeah, you've probably seen it also in London, Jeffrey, you know, some good coffee concepts come out of Australia and New Zealand. I know when I was in London for six months, I still had plenty of chance to go and have a good coffee from an Australian barista at many cafes. Mm. They seem to know the, the new barman of the century, aren't they? Can you give me a sense of how competitive the Melbourne coffee scene is? 
oh, there's lines of cafes. You can go down to any high street suburb in Melbourne every second, you know, business is a cafe and they're all doing well, you know. And I suppose that's our lifestyle too, you know. We Australians love the outside. We don't like being inside and cramped up and as soon as it's a sunny day, there's nothing better than people sit out on the street and people watch and, you know, slurp away on your coffee and we've created a, a really good meeting space in cafe. You know, it used to be the pub and I always put it down and it's like the, you know, once drink driving, come in to Australia and random breath tests, people couldn't go and meet at a pub at lunchtime and have a long lunch, you know. The cafe sort of took over that space. So what's next for Melbourne, do you think? I think Melbourne's just going through that reshuffle. I reckon we've probably lost 20% of cafes nationally and that's not a bad thing. What I'm seeing now, a lot of good operators have bought out the spaces where people have walked away. So you're going to start seeing probably some more multiple independents doing small chains, pushing into that three or four, you know, really good businesses spread around the city. And I'm also seeing that crossover between day and night as well. Because normally cafes shutting at you know, traditionally two, three o'clock in Australia, but I'm starting to see now them you know, diverting into bars, cocktail lounges, so small restaurants. So you're starting to see that you're better utilising the rentable space. Sean, thanks for joining us on Fifth Wave today. No, thank you. Sean estimates that nationally 20% of Australian cafes have recently closed, echoing Ross's remarks that COVID had a devastating impact on Melbourne's central business district outlets. But ultimately, he's bullish on the industry's prospects and sees the cafe market consolidating with stronger players taking greater market share. Finally, let's hear from Melbourne coffee legend Mark Dundon, a quiet achiever who many of his peers say was the central figure in the early rise of Melbourne's coffee scene and subsequently its influence globally. After opening a cafe in the then unfashionable Melbourne suburb of Brunswick at the turn of the 2000s, Mark went on to create a number of Melbourne's most iconic cafe brands, including St. Ali, Seven Seeds, Declure, and Brother Baba Budan. But it doesn't stop there. He co-founded the Paramount Coffee Project, a cafe concept in Sydney, and up until recently, Los Angeles. And he also co-owns a coffee farm in Honduras. Welcome to Fifth Wave, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Mark, um, how does the Melbourne scene today compared to those early days? It's changed so much, and I think that's the same as around the world, really. When you look at it now, the diversity and the approach. Like back in the early days, yeah, coffee was a lot more protected in regards to secrecy and things like that. Like a lot of suppliers, whether they were Italian-influenced or whoever, would guard their secrets, you know, in regards to their blends and all that sort of stuff fairly heavily. I just really wanted to explore the product and look at what it was doing and what was happening and just, I suppose, be fairly selfish about it and try and work it out just for me. And so we started putting cuppings on and things like that, and there was a fairly big interest in all that. You can see that now how, you know, cafes have just really exploded into that side of things where people really are looking at, you know, the difference in coffee, the different approaches. And, you know, I suppose they're a lot more educated about all the things coffee, whether it's varietal, whether it's processed, whether it's different brew methods. Like back in the early days, espresso was pretty much the only way people wanted to drink it. You know, we had filter coffees on the bar and we weren't selling pretty much any. They were pretty much just there for us. 
But in this day and age today, you know, we sell a lot of filter coffee now and people are really starting to embrace that. And I think you'd be able to see that, you know, the proliferation of cafes and, you know, smaller venues just really focusing on coffee has just exploded. What is the sort of current landscape, the kind of sort of economic background for coffee in Melbourne or the coffee industry? A couple of different factors are occurring at the moment. Like you do have COVID, which has made it very difficult for a lot of hospitality venues. I think now there's a lot of different pressures affecting the market in regards to pricing. I think one of the biggest factors at the moment is just having staff. A lot of people don't really want to work in hospitality anymore. So there's a fairly big change on that level. And I think, you know, cafes would really need to look at what their bottom line is going forward because I think a lot of cafes aren't making that much money just in regards to rising costs of, you know, food, rent, all those sort of things, as well as, you know, staff costs. Could you unpack that a bit more for me? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think realistically, you know, a lot of people have decided that, look, you know, what am I, you know, working so hard for or whatever, and they just want to take a little bit more time out or not work as much or do some of their own sort of projects or whatever. It just seems that it's very difficult to get that career-driven person, you know. And I think also now... The market's exploded enough that if you're really passionate, you know, barista or someone who's really worked in coffee for a while, you've pretty much done your own place or you've gone to that level of doing something. And now you're really drawing from people who, I suppose, are either university students or, you know, things like that. And the trouble with that is that, you know, we've been closed for such a long time that there isn't that, you know, population here. A lot of university students in Melbourne are from, you know, international coming to study, so they just haven't been back in the same numbers. You've launched a business in LA. Yep. What would you say is your experience, like Melbourne versus LA, some of the, the key differences? It's a good question because, like, you'd think it's a fairly similar culture, but in, in reality it's very different. Like, I think in Melbourne we really like that third place and we really enjoy a little bit of a dining culture um, where you're sitting down and you're being waited on. Whereas LA, in coffee world, it's all about the queue a little bit. Initially, I was just surprised that people really like to queue for a coffee because they were talking to one another, like they're very social people, LA. They're like talking to one another. They didn't really want to be told what to do. Like they didn't want to be taken to a table or whatever they wanted to really look at. You know, where they might like to sit, they didn't want anyone else looking after them. So they were either selling their script in the queue as they were waiting for a coffee or just bumping into those people and having those interactions. And then, you know, just hanging out a little bit, whereas it was far more structured in Melbourne. Like um, people really appreciated, you know, great coffee, great food and an approach to hospitality, you know, similar in both locations. Like you had to do good stuff, but it was just very different the way people were using the space, which I found really interesting. So if you kind of had to pick a direction for the Melbourne coffee scene, what do you think are some of the trends that will become more evident over the next couple of years? Like I think it's probably reached peak specialty coffee situation. Like I think at the moment with rising prices in coffee and things like that, I think we're seeing a lot of roasters who are using some fairly low-grade coffee who will have to look at how they're going to approach the market. So you know, there's a lot of talk of specialty coffee or sustainable coffee, but realistically, none of it is quantifiable. I can say I'm a specialty coffee roaster and be using whatever I like. There's no one who's going to come around and start checking me out for the specialty police. So there's a lot of coffee roasters who have emerged using imagery and 
you know, language, which I suppose looks the same as anyone else uh, who's selling coffee for cheap. And now when there's financial pressures on everyone, I think those players are making quite a lot of inroads into the market. The difficulty is that I think you can really taste the difference nowadays. Like, you know, you can really start to see some of the differences in what coffee should be. And I think the, you know, the public are becoming very well educated. So I think going forward, you'll have to see a choice between, you know, quality coffee and a price point versus just your 7-Eleven, $2 coffee, you know. And I hope that that, you know, comes out and people can really promote coffee. Like I think one of the problems we have in Melbourne is that there is no real organisation that actually looks after the industry and starts to really promote coffee as something that should be protected and something that should be understood a little more. With rising costs and staff shortages, what technological changes do you think we'll start seeing in Melbourne? Yeah, I think you'll see definitely more automation. It's probably unfortunate, but I think, you know, it's probably just going to be a way of actually really dealing with costs and things like that. I think you'll see the market go through some changes because people will need to actually really work through and get a business model that's really sustainable, as well as really hopefully looking at the future of coffee in regards to the retail model, working for the producer as well. I think with everyone, the public and you know consumers really looking and I suppose looking at venues or establishments that are really looking at doing the right thing in regards to coffee, making sure that they're either transparent or showing some sort of future towards coffee, you know, in protectionism. Like I think greenwashing will get called out a little bit more. So I'm hoping that coffee can really go forward a little bit and actually start to, I suppose, be adult and really protect itself by showing this relationship with the producer. Like if I'm going out and I'm paying, you know, $12 for a pint or $15 for a pint of beer that's brewed a kilometre down the road using local ingredients and I'm getting pressured to try and keep my coffee at 450, which is, you know, a process that happens 10,000 kilometres away and goes through so many hands. Mm. I think we really need to stand up and show what the product's about and why it's important to pay for it and really savour it. Mark, thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. It was interesting to hear Mark believes that Melbourne has hit peak specialty coffee saturation. As costs increase, alongside the need to provide a sustainable living for farmers, I'm curious to see whether a new specialty coffee pricing model might emerge, with the best operators not afraid to charge $10 or more for a premium coffee experience. And because the average Melbourne coffee drinker is now so knowledgeable, will they be willing to pay more for this elevated experience? But whatever happens, Melbourne's highly skilled baristas and savvy business owners will continue to influence cafes and roasteries across many corners of the world. Wishing everyone great luck with the competition and trade event this coming week. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to the Fifth Wave podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. If you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Link is in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, 
James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Brister. And this week's song, in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project, is Love and Distance by highly acclaimed UK artist Holly Rogers, featuring Jamie Lawson and Robin Ford. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. Bye.